We're going to do something a little different this morning. In fact, uh, I'm going to do something that I've only done one other time in my ministry. And the last time I did it was just a little over four years ago, which is crazy to think how fast time moves. Uh, and, and that is, I am going to preach another man's sermon. I know, I know, it's ridiculous, right? In November of 2019, I preached a famous sermon by Charles Spurgeon called Compel Them to Come In. And I, I believe the Lord blessed it. And uh, ever since I did that, I wondered if I'd have the opportunity and the inclination to do something like that again. And this morning, I am going to preach another sermon by Charles Spurgeon, one, this one whose title is just a single word, now. It's a sermon that I've heard Steve Lawson mention over and over again as he talks about preaching and evangelistic preaching, uh, but one that I've only read just recently in the last, I don't know, eight months or so. But the moment I finished reading it, I knew I was going to have to preach it to Grace Life. I didn't know when it was going to happen, uh, but I knew I was going to have to do it. And I believe the Lord in His providence has given us this post-Thanksgiving Sunday to do it. And I said this when I did it the first time, but it bears repeating. It's a precarious thing to preach another man's sermon. It's something that surely should not be done more than once in a great while. And when it's done, it should always be with attribution. There is hardly anything more contrary to gospel ministry than for a preacher to pretend that the sermon he's preaching is his own when he's plagiarizing another man. That is reprehensible. And because of that, I would ask for your help this morning. If someone comes in late and misses this little preamble, uh, if they're seated close enough to you, let them know that I'm preaching a Spurgeon sermon and that I'm not just affecting a Victorian-era vocabulary and speaking style. <laughs> and more than that, there is always the danger of acting in the pulpit. Uh, perhaps second to plagiarism, there's hardly a more grievous sin for a preacher than to pretend to feel what he's saying when he doesn't feel it. And that's almost always unavoidable when you're preaching a sermon you didn't write, which is why you shouldn't do that. And uh, I, I recognize that danger. Uh, but I want you to know that uh, I am not up here just reading this morning, okay? Not only did this sermon resonate with my heart enough to want to share it with you all, but as much as I have been able, I have endeavored to pray this sermon into my soul. And though I didn't write the words, I do feel them to be true, the, the, indeed a, a true expression of my own soul, my own heart to you. And uh, I, so I pray you receive them from one who means them genuinely. It, it's not unlike when I read a, a quote to you from a commentator or another preacher. I, I mean it and I preach it like I mean it, even though I'm reading someone else's words for a line or maybe for a paragraph. But in the same way, I mean this, just more than a line or a paragraph. It's the whole sermon. But if it's such a precarious thing to do, why do I do it? Well, for one thing, Spurgeon is a better preacher than I am. You say, well, but that's true every week. What's, what's the difference about this sermon, you know? You're right about that. Uh, a big part of it is I believe that many of the things Spurgeon says in this particular sermon will be a particular benefit for you personally to hear. Uh, as I said, I read it. Immediately I thought of how many people in Grace Life I wanted to, to send it to. And in particular, the, the sermon does a fantastic job of bringing comfort to sinning believers while also issuing a warning to unbelievers who profess faith. It's a wonderful example of celebrating the believer's present privileges 
while also exhorting them to live consistently with those privileges. And I think it's also an excellent model of evangelistic preaching, which I confess that I don't do enough of, but which is of inestimable benefit. And that's certainly true. It's, if, it's of great benefit to the unbelievers among us, of which there are many. I've been reminded recently, more than I care to be, of how many in our midst are no true Christians at all. And so they need to be earnestly called to repentance and faith in a way that Spurgeon was simply a master of doing. But evangelistic preaching is also a benefit to you, the people of God, who need to hear good evangelism modeled for you so that you would be faithful speakers of the gospel and also who need to be reminded of the good news of your own salvation. And so, as, as I said, the sermon is entitled, Now. Its text is 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. And Spurgeon preached it at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London on December 4th, 1864, when he would have been 30 years old. Uh, I've gone through and adapted some of the language for ease of communication, but it'll still feel a bit foreign to you, and so you'll need to dial in your attention to really get the benefit of it. I've also had to cut a few lines for the sake of time, but I'm uh, sure Spurgeon won't mind that now. <laughs> and as you'll hear, the sermon has four main points. But Spurgeon spends so long on the first two that he can only briefly treat points three and four, which makes me happy. I'm sort of glad to know that even the Prince of Preachers struggled with things like that. You know, oh, I, I spent too much time on my first points that I have to rush through my second few. Well, the first point is, number one, the now of believers, where he considers five subpoints: the richness of the believer's standing in Christ, the believer's testimony outside of the church where he does a great job of bringing the gospel to bear on the pursuit of holiness. Uh, he deals with the believer's privileges, the believer's duties, and the believer's prospect or hope for the future. And you'll hear those five subpoints through the first point as we work through it. The second main point is the now of sinners. So the now of believers, the now of sinners, where he urges unbelievers to give to God the best years of their lives and not to wait to be converted and urges them to repent now because they need salvation now and not later. And then briefly, he considers what now looks like in heaven and then what now looks like in hell. And with that out of the way, let's get to it. I'll begin by reading Spurgeon's text 2 Corinthians 6, 2 in his King James Version. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I helped thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And again, for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize a bit of his introduction since I gave you one of my own. Uh, he begins by noting how some people are always pining for the good old days and others are, seem always to be smitten with the spirit of the age at present and then how still others become neglectful of past and present for a sort of pie-in-the-sky attitude toward the future. But then Spurgeon begins here. But there is one thought which should not leave us when talking about times and seasons, namely that now... Now, just now, this present flying moment, that second which is being recorded by the ticking of yonder clock is the only time which we have to work with. I can do nothing with the days that are past. 
I can do not nothing with the day's future, yet I reach out towards them, but I cannot improve them. The past and future are fields far beyond the reach of my culture. I cannot plow them or sow the future. I cannot prune and correct the past. For practical purposes, the only time I have is that which is just now passing. Did I say I had it? While I said I had it, it's gone. Like the meteor which dashes down in the sky, or the eagle which flies afar, or the swift ships which disappear beyond the horizon. Time present is the only time I may ever have. Before any future shall have become present, I may be merged in eternity. As far as I know, this day may be the end of my life's career. When yonder sun sinks to his rest, I may sink to my rest also, so far as time is concerned. If there be more time allotted to me, yet it will never come to me in any other guise and form than as time present. I call it future now, but when I get to it, it will be to me present then. And consequently, for practical purposes, however much we may speculate upon the past or the future, the present moment is the only time we have, only time we may have, only time we ever can have. And it becomes important that all our thoughts should be centered upon it if we would make our calling and election sure. Our text directs us to that solemn employment, and it does so by a very telling argument. You perceive that our text is a quotation. How ought we to value the Old Testament? If inspired men of God who spoke by the Holy Ghost yet quoted the Old Testament, how valuable must be its bejeweled sentences? The apostle here quotes from the 49th chapter of Isaiah, the 8th verse. In that passage, the Lord God is speaking to the Messiah, speaking to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to him, In an acceptable time have I heard you, and in a day of salvation have I helped you. The first part then of this verse is a quotation from Isaiah. The second part of the verse is Paul's commentary upon the passage. Behold, now is the accepted time. He takes his text from the Old Testament, but he gives us a New Testament sermon upon it. Let us try if we can catch the apostle's meaning. When Paul was reading in Isaiah, he perceived that the Lord Jehovah had expressly said to him, whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors. And who is this but the Lord Jesus? In an acceptable time have I heard you. Jesus sighs and tears and bloody sweat in the garden of Gethsemane did not fall unheeded. Like the blood of Abel, they cried from the ground and were heard acceptably above. An answer was given. This was plainly proved by the descent of the angel to strengthen the Savior. So the prophetic words add, In a time accepted and in the day of salvation have I helped you. The apostle infers from this that inasmuch as God hath accepted Christ, the representative of his people, he has thereby ushered in an era of acceptance. Acceptance given to the Savior is, in the apostle's view, acceptance given to sinners. Inasmuch as Christ is heard, he prayed not for himself but for us, there is therefore an accepted time for us begun and commenced from the day when Christ went up to the tree and stretched his hands to the nails and bowed his head to death and said, It is finished. 
Paraphrase the text this way. I have heard Jesus, the surety, in an acceptable time. In the day of salvation have I helped him, the mighty Savior, and therefore to you, my people, to you, poor, lost, and wandering sinners, to you, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. If Christ had not died, there would have never been a day of salvation. If Christ had not been heard and accepted and accepted time, there never could have come to us. But since he, man's representative, has obtained favor in the eyes of God and through his complete work has forever settled that favor upon himself, there is favor in the heart of God to those whom Christ represented, even to those transgressors for whom he makes intercession. Well, we shall now take to the text as God may help us, using it first to look at the now of believers, then at the now of sinners. And after this, taking wing from the text, we shall offer a few reflections upon now in heaven and close with a few solemn thoughts upon now in hell. First then, now with the believer. With him, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As a believer, it is well for the Christian to live, number one, in the present. I say as a believer. For alas, there is a temptation to make our faith a thing of the past. It is, and Spurgeon says, nearly 16 years since I first looked to the crucified Redeemer and was lightened and my face was not ashamed, Psalm 34, 5. Is there a temptation in me to say the faith which I exercised in Christ in my youthful days has saved me and therefore I am now in a different position than I was then and need not feel now as I did at first? If there be such a temptation, let me shake it off as a man would shake off the deadly sleep of frozen climes. Let me this morning feel myself to be still in myself just what I was, a sinner, loathsome, undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving. And what then? Why then let me this morning stand where I stood in the first moment of my salvation at the foot of the Savior's cross and look up and view the flowing of his soul-redeeming blood with divine assurance knowing that he has made my peace with God. At this moment, my dear brother, Your proper standing is as a sinner saved by blood, looking up to those dear wounds from which your pardon streamed. Have you had many virtues since then? Has the grace of God led, led you on to add to your faith courage and to your courage experience and to your experience brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity? Yet for all this, your safest, holiest, best position is at the foot of the cross with none of these things in your hand as the price of your salvation, but looking to your Redeemer who alone has found a ransom for you. Since the day of your conversion, you have committed many sins. Dare you look at them without trembling? How often have we grieved our Lord? Our love to Him, shall we dare to call it love? Our faith in Him, how mixed with unbelief. Our zeal, how dashed with selfishness. Our humility, how stained with pride. 
our patience, how spoiled with murmuring, our every good thing marred and rendered worthless, what a crop of weeds the soil of our heart has produced. When we look within, we see, James 4, 5, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. And every unclean bird seeks a lodging place in our hearts as in a grove of vanities. What shall we then do? Why, come just now with all these sins and wash once more in that fountain which has lost none of its fullness and feel the power of the precious blood which has not diminished one whit in its efficacy. I know the temptation is to climb to some higher room, but let us be warned by the non-success of the boasting Pharisee and taught by the justification of the humble publican still to cry, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Beware of trying to live life before God as a minister. Brother minister, this is poor living, to live officially, to go to the closet or come into God's house merely as holding a certain profession. Oh, this is starving work. If your tendency be to live as quote-unquote church members, if not altogether as worldly men, rouse yourselves from it, I pray you, and confess with Paul, and the life which I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The proper place of a Christian is never to get one inch beyond this, a monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. I live in Jesus on Jesus, for Jesus, with Jesus, and hope soon to be perfectly conformed to his likeness. Let me recollect that if there could be a moment in which my soul might stand out of Christ, no longer leaning upon him and no longer covered with his righteousness, that very moment I must be condemned. For there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, but there is a terrible condemnation against every soul that is out of him. Have you climbed so high that you have towered above the place of the poor thief? Come back again, brother, for you have climbed to a dangerous altitude. Maybe you shall find it a gallows whereon Haman was hanged, and you shall hang with him. Or have you dived so deep in a sense of your own depravity, that you have forgotten to rest on Jesus Christ as able to save you still? My brother, look up from the hole of the pit, for in it there is no water, and you will perish there with grievous famine. Oh, then, away with all but Jesus, none but Jesus. This must be our watchword at the gates of death, and we must enter heaven with it. And as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so must we walk in Him. He must be the Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, author and finisher, first and last. As believers, let us, by God the Holy Spirit's grace, keep our trust just where it was at first, in Him whom God has set forth to be a propitiation for our sins. Take the word now again and look at the Christian number two as a professor. Consider his testimony out in the world. Now you are in the house of God, my dear friends, and you recollect that you profess to be followers of Christ. 
Now, therefore, you sing in holy hymns of praise and join in solemn prayers to God as Christians should do in the worship of God. Tomorrow morning, some of you perhaps will be at Copenhagen Fields Market, some of you at Newgate Market, others of you will be lighting the fire in your master's house, others seeing to your numerous families, others taking down the shop shutters. Will you then recollect, dear friends, that now where you then are, you are a Christian? You are not to say, I was a Christian yesterday, but now, now I am a Christian. A customer will come in. The temptation will be perhaps to take more than you ought to do. Will you please recollect, now I am a child of God. Not yesterday when I was listening to Mr. Spurgeon at the tabernacle, but now. When you are in the market, there will be much to plague and vex you. And perhaps you will think, I cannot enjoy the presence of God there. Oh, but my dear brother, now is the accepted time. Buying sheep, selling bulls, using the hammer, snipping with the scissors, working at the plow, tending your sheep. Now, now, now is the day of salvation. You are still a Christian. Therefore, act as a Christian. But you are much plagued and vexed. Somebody teases you. Things go wrong. What could be a better stop to that little rising passion? What could keep under the naughty spirit better than to recollect now, now I am a Christian, even now. A true Christian cannot shake off his character. He is really what he is. He always must be a Christian. It is not a religious coat, but a renewed heart. I pray you keep this at all times on your mind. Now I am accepted. Now I am saved. How can such a man as I do such a thing? As Joseph said to Potiphar's wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Mordecai once wore the king's robe, but he soon put it off because he was not really a king. And thus do many act who wear the garb of religion in the house of God, but cast it off when they go home. When Lord Burley, Queen Elizabeth's counselor, reached his home, he was so little pleased with the cares of the state that, he, that taking off his robe, he threw it down, saying, Lay there, Lord Chancellor. Ah, how irksome must some men's religion be to them, and how cheerfully would they lay aside its restraints. But you who are really the Lord's will, I trust, feel your faith to be your constant help and your profession to be your perpetual honor. You will not, you cannot sin because you are born of God. Suppose a brother has his pen in hand, or Spurgeon might say today, a keyboard at his fingertips, and is going to write what we sometimes call a nasty letter. Now, suppose an angel should whisper in his ears as he is writing, now, now you are one of God's chosen. You have been washed in the precious blood of Christ, and now you profess to be a member of his body, a king and a priest unto God. Why, I think he would throw the pen away and tear the paper up. Or just when you are about to proceed to extremities with some poor soul who asks your mercy, if you could recollect that you are now, even now, an heir of heaven, I think you would say, Lord, give me grace to act according to my profession and not to stain the character I have assumed. Let now keep on your mind with regard to your profession and the duty 
which it brings. Dear friends, let me comfort your hearts by the recollection that now, as a child of God, you are, number three, a possessor of present privileges. I do not know what your frame of mind may be this morning. You may have been very much tempted. You may feel, through some sickness of body, anything but cheerful. But if you believe in Christ, remember, now you are a child of God. And though it does not appear yet what you shall be, yet when he shall appear, you shall be like him, for you shall see him as he is. At this very moment, I, a believer in Christ, am completely pardoned. No spot of sin remains on me if I believe in Jesus. White as the newly fallen snow is every soul that has been washed in the precious blood. Think of this delightful truth, desponding Christian, and let your countenance no more be sad. Your eye of faith is dim, your evidences very slender, your graces are at a low ebb, but you are completely forgiven, absolved and acquitted at this moment if your soul rests upon the rock of ages." You are completely justified this moment despite your sins. Wearing your Savior's righteousness, you stand all beauteous in the eye of God at this very moment. The words of Solomon to the spouse in Song 4-7 are the words of Christ to you. Though you are vexed with a thousand cares, you are all fair, my love. There is no spot in you covered with his righteousness and washed in his blood, even the pure and holy eyes of God can find no fault in you. And as a consequence of this, you are this moment accepted. Numbers twenty-three thirty-one. he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. Romans eight thirty-three. who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? God does not look upon you with any anger. Though your heart may be struggling and tormented with sin, yet if you are resting upon God's Son, the love of God is flowing out to you in a stream which can never be stayed. Think of this sweet thought and let your soul be filled with the perfume of it. Loved of God, now. The object of the almighty affection of the Blessed One are you now. Nay, more than this, you are not only accepted, but you are in union with Christ now. Beloved believer, can you realize it? You are a member of His body, His flesh and of His bones. There is a vital union at this instant between you and the Lord of glory. The lifeblood flows from Him, the head, to you. And at this moment, whether in your worst state of feeling or your best, you are now one with Jesus by eternal union. One. I would to God that we realized our present privileges. We are thinking about the heaven that is to come and forgetting the heaven below. The first we should do, but the second we should not leave undone. The men of grace find that the fruits of paradise hang over the wall. And they begin to pluck and eat thereof before they pass the gates of pearl. 
He's saying the life in Christ is the sweetest life there is. Come, Christian, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Since Jesus is accepted, so are you even now. Live upon your present privileges and be glad. Recollect that wherever there is present privilege, there is also, number four, a present duty to be performed. And so I touch a string which I made to sound just now. Since now is the accepted time with sinners, now is the accepted time for you to work, O Christian. I know what you intend to do. You have vast plans and machinery. My brother, I do not care what you mean to do tomorrow, but I do care about what you intend to do today. Oh, those daydreams of ours. We are always intending in a year or two's time to be such valorous defenders of the faith, such good soldiers of Christ, such good winners of souls. My dear brother, what are you doing now? There flies that moment. What does it bear upon its wings? Another drop of the stream of time has passed away. What action of yours is reflected on its crystal surface? Are you doing anything now? I do not know, says one. I, I do not know that I can do anything just now. When the service is broken up, I may get home and then try to do something. I, I pray you remember that now is the accepted time, and therefore now seek to get your heart warm. And when the service is over, think that you hear the now and begin to speak to those in the pew or on the way home, talk to any person you might meet with. And then tomorrow, do not say, Sunday is over, I cannot do any good on the weekday, but think you hear the clarion sound of this word, now. You have a sister unsaved, pray for her now. You have a brother unconverted, write to him if you cannot speak to him and do it now. There is a court, a blind alley which needs visiting. A dying man who needs instruction, do it now. I say it again, I do not care what you do with your tomorrow. If you but give God your now, your tomorrows will be all right. For duty then, let the Christian prize the now. One thought more, number five, the Christian recollects that now he may die. What is his present prospect now let him take courage if his lord should come now he has his loins girt about and his lamp well trimmed and he is ready to enter into the supper he will not be overtaken as by a thief but his lord when he cometh shall find him watching and should death come before the advent then he can say now shall i enter into my rest now shall i see the face of my lord jesus without a veil to hide him and I shall be with him supremely blessed. The glorious advent or the bliss of heaven is your prospect now. Not that you will go to heaven if you die in 20 years' time, but that if you die now, if the hand of death should take you in the street or you should feel its numbing influence while you are in the pew, now the celestial band shall bear you to the sublimities of glory and introduce you to the presence of him whom you love. Now, Christian, rejoice. Now labor, now live at the foot of the Savior's cross. May the Master give us power on the second point to deal with now as it respects the sinner. The great mischief of most men is that they procrastinate. 
It is not that they resolve to be damned, but that they resolve to be saved tomorrow. It is not that they reject Christ forever, but that they reject Christ today. And truly, they might as well reject him forever as continually, continue perpetually to reject him now. Sinner, let me put your now before you, first as a man. You must soon pass away and be forgotten, like the flowers that withered in autumn and the insects which flitted through the summer hours. Now then is your time to think about eternity and to prepare yourself to meet your God. See to your business first, James, said a careful father. Get a good trade, and after that look to your religion. There spoke a fool, who knew not that infinite wisdom has commanded, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Would you give God the tail end of your life? Take care, lest you have no old age at all, for many candles are blown out as soon as lit. Would you, as a lamb... Be Satan's, and then when you are withered and worn out, shall the lean skeleton of tottering weakness be brought and laid upon the altar? Be it not so. Let your flower be plucked in the bud and put into the hand of Jesus. God grant you grace to seek him in the days of your youth. For the promise is, they that seek me early shall find me, Proverbs eight seventeen. As a man, I charge you, since there is only a day of salvation, before the sun goes down and the black night of eternal ruin shall come upon you, lay hold upon the hope that is set before you. Secondly, as a sinner, I also address you concerning this now. Now is the day of salvation. You need it now. God is angry with you now. You are condemned already. It is not the torment of hell you have to dread only, but if you have your senses, you would tremble at your present state. Now without God, now without hope, now an alien from the commonwealth of Israel, now dead in trespasses and sins, now in uh, in danger of the wrath to come. You need a Savior this morning, young man. Young woman, I do not charge you to store up medicine against the maladies, maladies of 20 years hence. It's the sickness of today of which I would fain have you cured this very morning. It is not to look after a danger which shall press upon you when you grow old that I exhort you. But now you are on the brink of the precipice. Now, therefore, you need to be saved. But here comes the beauty of my text. Thirdly, as a sinner under the gospel, I pray you to recollect that now is the accepted time. The most of my unconverted hearers do not believe this. I know what you're saying. You say, I've had a great many thoughts about religion. But why do you not believe in Christ now? Well, you say, I will endeavor to think seriously of it. But what will be the result of your thinking? After you have thought ever so much, do you imagine that you will think yourself into salvation? If the gospel command were, think and be saved, I would cheerfully allow you a month's thinking. But the command is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now is the acceptable time. But, sir, I do not think such things should be done in a hurry. In a hurry. What does David say? I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. A hurry. 
When a man is on the edge of damnation and on the borders of the grave, do not talk of hurry, sir. When it is a case of life and death, let us fly swift as a flash of lightning. Well, but I do not feel prepared. Do you think that disobeying God will make you more prepared? If you have lived a month without believing, you have lived a month in sin. Do you think that when you've sinned more, you'll be better prepared to obey the command which comes to you? Believe now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but my heart feels so hard. Dear friend, do you think that you'll be able to soften it between this and next week or next month or next year? Is there anything in the word of God which leads you to believe that you in any way soften your own heart? Is not this a mighty work of grace? And when the text says now is the accepted time, does not this suppose that even if you have a hard heart, still it is true that now is the accepted time? Well, but, says one, I do not feel convinced enough. Well, that is to say, dear friend, that you do not think now is the accepted time. You think that another time when you get more convinced will be the accepted time. Here is a quarrel between God and you. He says now, you say, no, no, it can't be true. When I'm more convicted, then will be the time. My dear friend, are you not altogether mistaken? The likelihoods are that you will never be more convinced, convicted than now if you are brought now to think upon these things. Your heart will certainly grow harder in course of time, but softer never. I've never heard of a case of a man whose heart was made softer by delay. Yes, but I should like to get home and pray. My text does not say it will be the accepted time when you get home and pray. It says now. And as I find that you are now in this pew, now is the accepted time. If you trust Christ, now you will be accepted. If now you are enabled to throw yourself simply into the hands of Christ, now is the accepted time between God and you. Well, says another, it does seem strange to think that I shall be saved this morning. There must be a little time occupied in it, surely. The text says now is the accepted time. It doesn't say there is an accepted time lasting through a period of weeks and months in which we pump ourselves up into a state of grace. But now, in a moment, acceptance is given. And then he says, will you kindly look at that text? Just open your Bibles now and look at it. You especially who are unconverted, it has two finger, po uh, finger posts point to point to it. Two beholds. Behold, now is the accepted time. Now, stop and look at that. Do you believe it? And he actually says, say yes or no. <laughs> There's another behold. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do you believe that? If you do not dare to call the text a lie, Away must go in a single moment all those excuses which you make about a hard heart, not being convinced enough, praying, reading, preparing, and so on. Now, just as the clock ticks, not as an event to take place during a quarter of an hour, but in a moment, the whole thing is done. Now is the day of salvation. And what do you say to this? Does God the Holy Spirit now lead your soul to say, Gracious Lord, I trust my soul with you now. Oh, it is all done. Fly up to heaven, angels. Bear the tidings. Tell the spirits who look down anxiously, watching for the spreading of the kingdom of the Savior, that another heir of glory is born. Another prodigal has returned to his father's house. Now, now, now. Oh God, let conquering grace get the victory. 
How my soul has longed over this text, and now when I get at it, I cannot handle it as I would. But if I might, I would fain take some of you by the hand. Think that I have your hand now, and I would put, it, put this to you. I may never have another opportunity of preaching this text in your ears. You may be gone before there's another hear, a season to hear. Do you wish to be made well? John 5, 26. Can you believe? If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Mark 9, 23. But sir, I am a harlot steeped up to the throat in vice. Still, now is the accepted time. Ah, but I've grown gray, sir. I'm 70 or 80. Oh, I've refused the invitation a thousand times over. Yes, but still, still the abundant grace of God says now is the accepted time. I would to God that some of you would decide this very morning, this very morning in your seat where you are now sitting. Now, O Spirit of the living God, waken those whom you have chosen and set apart unto eternal life. I have not time to dwell on the other two points. We will merely, therefore, hint at them. Number three, now in heaven. Can you think of it? Now in heaven. What must it be to be there? They now delight in the society of Christ. They are now blessed with communion with all the glorified spirits. They are now resting from their labors, their toils, their sufferings. They are now full of joys while to their golden harps they sing. They are just now satisfied with the favor and full of the goodness of the Lord. They are now knowing what they knew not here, knowing even as they are known. They are now more than conquerors waving their palm branches. They are now safely shut in from all fear of danger. They are now perfect without taint of sin or remainder of corruption. They are now supremely blessed. I merely point the finger where my wing cannot carry me and where my eye cannot see. Such are your friends who have departed. Your wife is there now. Your little infant children are there. Your brother is there. Your grandfather is there. And we, if we should now die, blessed be the name of God, many of us would know what they know and taste what they now enjoy in an instant. But then to turn to a dreary thought, number four, now in hell. Some of my hearers who listened to me last year and in the years that are past are now, now in hell. Now where no hope can come. Now where no gospel shall be preached. Now where they bitterly regret their wasted Sabbaths and despised opportunities. Now where memory holds a dreadful reign reminding them of all their sins. Now, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, where they gnaw their fire-tormented tongues in vain. Now, where God's fury is manifested to the full in Tophet's hideous fire. Now, where devils, once their tempters, become their tormentors. Now, where sinners who kept jovial company 
help to increase the doleful miserere of sighs and groans and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, accursed of God, accursed forever and ever. And within a moment, that may be the lot of every sinner here. Within the twinkling of an eye, there is not a man or woman among us outside of Christ who may not know this. One drop of blood goes wrong. A thousand chances, as we say, may cause it. And hell is your portion. Every anatomist knows that hundreds of times in an hour, through the internal economy of the human frame, our life is in danger. Nay, there is not a second in which it is not so. And he quotes a hymn from Isaac Watts. Great God, on what a feeble thread hang everlasting things. And then another hymn from Watts. Our life contains a thousand springs and dies if one be gone. Strange that a harp of thousand strings should keep in tune so long. While we are in this danger, we are passing on to our doom. And then one more hymn. We nightly pitch our moving tent a day's march nearer home. But where is that home to be with you, unconverted ones? When the express trains first began to run in Scotland, there was seen at the station one evening a gentleman tall and thin whose cheek had the consumptive mark on it. The porters asked him several questions about his luggage, of which there was a good deal. And when he had been asked several times by different persons, another came up and said, Where are you going, sir? Being of short temper and in great haste, he said, to hell. In other words, he was angry that they were bugging him, and he just short-temperedly, I'm, I'm going to hell. What about it? A servant of Christ passed by that moment and, uh, and heard the answer. He sought to get in the same carriage, and he did so, but at the other end of it. And this gentleman was talking very freely to, persons upon, uh, to different persons upon common topics, and the man thought, I will get in a word if I can. So he joined the general tenor of the conversation till they alighted at a refreshment station. When, taking the opportunity, he said to the gentleman, when do you expect to get to the end of your journey? Oh, said he, I'm going to cross at such and such town by the boat tonight and hope to get to my journey's end by 12 o'clock tomorrow morning. The man said, I think you misunderstand my question. You said when the porter asked you just now where you were going to, that you were going to a very different place. Ah, yes, I recollect I did, said the gentleman, but I'm sometimes very hasty. The other said to him, was it true? Are you going to hell? If so, when do you expect to get there? And he began to talk, talk to him about that sickness which he could so easily see in his cheek and warned him that unless he sought another road and fled to Christ the only refuge, he would certainly reach that dreadful end. There are some in this place who if they were labeled this morning as to where they were going, would have to be directed to hell. You know that this is the case. And when will you get to your journey's end? Some here may live another 50 years. I pray, God, that that question of mine may haunt you. And if it be never blessed to you before, may it be then. When will you get to your journey's end? When will you arrive in hell? This morning, may some of you in your hearts say, I am journeying there, but by the grace of God, I have come to a dead halt 
and not another inch will I go. Lord, make me ready to go to heaven. Give me now to trust in this Savior that I may live. May God bless these feeble words of mine to his glory and to your profit. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your word is forever settled in the heavens and that you have borne witness to it in every generation. And we thank you for men whom you've raised up and given uncommon grace to, men like Spurgeon, men like our own pastor, who you use in the day of their life, but also well beyond uh, their sojourn here. Thank you for the grace of God given to Charles Spurgeon. Thank you for the heart that he had for the lost. I pray that you would give us that heart, that you would give us this yearning and aching to see those we love and preach to come all the way to salvation, to not stop short of the grace of God, not to listen in a place as lovely as this about heaven and the privileges of grace and life in Christ and then at the end to be outside of Christ through stubborn unrepentance and unbelief. Would you give us a, a zeal for souls so that we, we stop with the, the phony pleasantries and schmoozing conversation and speak of things that matter. How is it really with you? Are you really in Christ? But I see this and I see that. And what of it? What, what can you say to, to account for this in your life? I'm not your judge, but there is one who is your judge greater than I and with whom it would be easy to deal with me, but you have to deal with him. And I am your friend who would warn you of these things. I pray we wouldn't be speck pickers, that we wouldn't walk around trying to get everybody lost so that we could salve our own delusions of grandeur in making ourselves evangelists, but that we would be, not for the fear of that, that we wouldn't be rendered useless to our brothers and sisters, to those who pretend, at least, to be our brothers and sisters. And certainly it is useful for genuine Christians to be asked about such things, to make our calling and election sure, to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. So I pray you would give us a heart for the lost. And I pray that, that you would save the lost. I pray that through even this sermon, which is not mine but Spurgeon's, but then other sermons that are mine, <laughs> that are Phil's, that are Pastor John's, that you would use these poor, lisping, stammering tongues to speak a glorious gospel and that you would unite the speaking of that gospel with power from heaven, that you would break the chains of sin and, and cause those dead to be raised to life. Help us to rejoice in the glories of what salvation is and then help us seal to our hearts what that first point was for Spurgeon, those, those five sub-points, the fact that we are now Christians, we are now assured of heaven, as sure as Christ is sure of heaven, we are assured of heaven in him, and therefore we have an immense amount of privileges that no matter how low our graces seem to us, no matter how we fail you, no matter how our sins plague us, yet if we're resting and trusting in Christ alone for pardon, we have it and you own us and can't see the pardon. You see only the righteousness of Christ's obedience and you say you are altogether lovely. There's no spot in you. Oh, how, how could it be that the omnipotent, holy, omniscient gaze of God could look upon us 
and find no stain in us. It's only because we wear the robe of the righteousness of Christ, seal such a truth to our hearts that we are now accepted with the God of heaven because of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, as Spurgeon says, to live uh, commensurate with our privileges, to live in a way that makes sense of that. Not beneath our privileges, as so many of us does, wistfully wandering through life as if we were without a Savior, without a head that has gone before us, without a, a guide and master to show us the way, without a forerunner who leads us by that same path, indistinguishable from the world. Make us distinguishable. Neat provisions of grace with still more and more grace in a time that we, we stop to remember in this Christmas season, the incarnation of God the Son. May it be that we receive from Him grace upon grace gift after gift, blessing in place of blessing, on top of blessing. We are sinners and we ask great things of a great God. And Lord, I pray especially for those who are here who are deceived as to their own condition before you, who talk the talk of Christianity, who go through the motions, who even read their Bible, even make a feign of praying who sit when they are told to sit, who stand when they're told to stand, who sing when they're told to sing, but who have no relationship with Christ aside from judge, who deceive themselves and deceive others, who excuse their own sin, even at the correction of others. And they say, oh, here are fanatics, here are the people who take themselves too seriously, here are the, the, the judges, those who would... Think they think they're better than me, holier than thou. So does Satan snatch the word from the hardened path that might pierce beneath the surface and yield a crop to you. I pray that you would drive Satan from such hearts and that you would soften the soil of such hearts and that you would cause the word preached to go down deep and that you would grant regeneration. I think of names now, Father, and you know them. I pray that you would seek them out. As Spurgeon had called you the hound of heaven, you would seek them out and go and, and have what you are worthy of in their lives. May it be that none here goes to hell while hearing of heaven. None here travels that horrible wide path while thinking and pretending to be on the narrow path. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for servants better than ourselves to whom uh, for us become uh, living examples or d dead examples among the living of, of how we can press after preaching your gospel better. We can, can't preach a better gospel, but we can aim to preach the gospel more faithfully, more earnestly, more truthfully. What could we do? Words fail us. We leave it to heaven. We leave it to the Holy Spirit of God to search out those whom you have chosen, Father, Christ whom you have died for. We pray that you would get what you're worthy of in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.